Lekutasichis, Volume 16, the fifth Sicha of Vaera. The title of this article on the Sicha is The Ultimate Liberation from Self. I just want to share that I believe that for this Sicha, a lot of background knowledge had to be um, explained. And I took the liberty to do so, and I will share it in this um, audio sicha as well. So first of all, before we even get into the whole thing, let's just have a summary, a synopsis. Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Yosef Galili argue about how many plagues God smote Egypt with. There are three prohibitions concerning chametz on Passover, eating, enjoying, and owning. Now, Rabbi Yehuda mandates eliminating chametz only by burning, while the sages say that it suffices to crumble it into the wind or throw it into the ocean. So too, the Rishalmi Talmud states an argument whether it is permissible to feed one's chametz on Passover to an ownerless animal, meaning you have no financial pleasure from it. The sages sometimes count the Egyptian exile as one of the four exiles, and sometimes not. So there are so many different arguments that was quoted here. However, in essence, all of the above is but one argument concerning how deep the impurity of the exile affects, whether in the material of the form or in the original mass itself. Thus, how deep our service must be for the exodus. And thus, how high the redemption will reach. The outcome of all this being that we are capable to liberate ourselves even from the rawest definition of self. Okay, let's see the Sikha. In the Agada for Passover Seder, we find an argument stated in the Mechilta concerning the plagues that God smote Egypt with. And I quote you from the Haggadah. Rabbi Yosef the Galilean said, Thus you must conclude that in Egypt there were smitten by ten plagues. We'll discuss this later on, this specific opinion. Now, Rabbi Eliezer said, How do we know that each individual plague, which the Holy One, blessed be he, brought upon the Egyptians in Egypt consists of four plagues? Thus you must now say that in Egypt they were struck by forty plagues. And then the Haggadah goes on, Rabbi Akiva said, how do we know that each individual plague which the Holy One, blessed be He, brought upon the Egyptians in Egypt consisted of five plagues, brings his proof in the verse, and concludes, thus you must now say that in Egypt they were struck by 50 plagues. Now, the commentaries explain the argument to be what that Rabbi Eleza says, there are four plagues because there is no plague of the simple element. Rather, they are all composed of all the four elements. And therefore he said that each plague was of four. And Rabbi Akiva who added that each plague was of five, for in his opinion, even the element of the orbits, which is the fifth element, was assembled within them. Now, this was a quote from a commentary. He's actually a book of laws, but in his book of laws, he has commentaries on the Haggadah, and he's called the Kalbo. You can look it up in Simon 51. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give some background here. What does it mean, the simple element, the fifth element? 
I mean, we know the fourth element, Maimonides uh, talks to us about the four elements of fire, air, water, and earth. But what is this fifth element? So I'm going to read to you the footnote that I wrote here. In a footnote, the Rebbe brings different opinions as to what this is. For the sake of simple clarity, I will explain it based on how the Bible, unauthorized by C.H. Moose, explains Rashi's opinion of Genesis and also based upon Nachmanides' comment on the word Bora created. Rashi states, All the creations of heaven and earth were created on the first day, and each was fixed in its proper place on the day that was decreed upon it. Nachmanides writes, The Holy One, blessed be He, created all things from absolute non-existence. Now, we have no expression in the sacred language for bringing forth something from nothing other than the word bara, created. Everything that exists under the sun or above was not made from non-existence at the outset. Instead, he brought forth from total and absolute nothing a very thin substance, devoid of corporeality, but having a power of potency fit to assume form and to proceed from potentiality into reality. This was the primary matter created by God. It is called by the Greeks Heli, matter. After the Heli, we pronounce it in the, in the teachings Heuli, he did not create anything, but he formed and made things with it. And from this Heuli, he brought everything into existence and clothed the forms and put them into a finished condition. That was a quote from Nachmanides. That was about this simple, primordial, raw, amorphous um, substance, matter. Now, Maimonides explains, I quote, He created four forms from this matter. The first of these forms is the form of fire. The second of these forms is the form of wind. The third of these forms are the form of water. The fourth of these forms is the form of earth. And then in the next chapter of laws, the Maimonides goes on to say, These four bodies, fire, wind, water, and earth, are the fundamental elements of all the creations below the sky. Everything that exists, be it man, beast, fowl, crawling creature, fish, plant, metal, precious stones, pearl, building stone, mountain, or lump of earth. This the body, this he, together with the four elements, okay, I'm sorry, um, a lump of earth, the body of all these uh, entities is a combination of these four fundamental elements, period, end quote of Maimonides. So we're talking about a primordial matter, and we're talking about the four elements. Now, this Hiuli, together with the four elements, is how C.H. Moose explains Rashi that everything was created on the first day, meaning the mass of matter, which then on each day thereafter, it was the form of each creation that was fermented via the four elements. And this is what is meant here with simple element and special element. With this, we can understand that Rabbi Eliezer is speaking of the plagues only dealing with the four elements of the form of Egyptian impurity, while Rabbi Akiva includes the fifth element of the Hiuli. Okay, that was a footnote just to understand. Let's go back to the Sikha. Hence, it is clear that 
A. According to both opinions, the plague did not just deal with the object as seen to the naked eye, but rather to the very essence and beingness of the object. And B. The opinions of how deep the plague penetrated the Egyptian realm, the object, is based upon their opinions of how far the impurity penetrated the Egyptian realm from the plagues came came to subdue the impurities. Therefore, the arguments about what was in each plague is actually the outcome of the argument of what was, how deep did each plague actually reach. This concept of how deep the impurity penetrated the object manifests itself in Jewish law as well. Concerning the prohibition of chametz on Passover. Concerning the prohibition of chametz on Passover, we find three prohibitions. Number one, eating. The verse says, leavened bread shall not be eaten. The second is deriving pleasure, usage. I quote you from the Talmud, Chizkia said, from where is it derived that it is forbidden to derive benefit from leavened bread on Passover? As it is stated, leavened bread shall not be eaten. Now, since the verse uses the passive, it should, it means should not be eaten, rather do not eat, it should be understood as follows. There shall be no permitted consumption of it. Now, Rashi, I just want to quote you Rashi here, from the verse calling this prohibition of deriving pleasure shall not be eaten, which means that he will not have any permission that leads to any eating. And in general, pleasures lead to eating. By the person taking the money, he derives from the benefit of the chametz and buying with it food to eat. Let's go back to the Talmud. So what we're seeing here is the passive language of shall not be eaten tells me not that it should not physically be eaten, but it shouldn't even be used to any benefit, which will then bring the possibility to buy food to eat. Now, let's go back to the Talmud. The reason is that the merciful one writes, leavened bread shall not be eaten. Had it not written, shall not be eaten, but instead used the active form, you shall not eat, I would have said that the prohibition of eating is implied. But the prohibition of deriving benefit is not implied. Hence, from the passive form, we learn that not only is it prohibited to eat chametz on Pesach, it's even prohibited to have any usage deriving pleasure from it. Now, there's a third category, which is ownership, which is known as the prohibition of not seen and not found. Let's look at the verse. The verse says, for seven days, leavening shall not be found in your houses. Upon this, Rashi says, how do we know that the same ruling applies to leavening found within the borders outside the house, your yard, your, your office? Therefore, scriptures state, and I quote you, and no leaven shall be seen of yours in your possession, and no leavening shall be seen of yours throughout all of your borders. Now, if it already said borders, which includes also the house, so Rashi goes on to say, why then the scripture stayed in your house, which is already included in throughout all your borders. And Rashi goes on to tell us, it's to teach us just as your house is in your domain. So the prohibition against possessing leaven in your borders means only what is in your domain.
This excludes leaven belonging to a Gentile, which is in a Jew's possession, and for which he, the Jew, did not accept responsibility. Okay. The difference between the prohibitions, we have the eating, the deriving pleasure, and even the existence of chametz in my possession, is as follows. Eating and not eating is connected to the form of the food as it is an edible item. Deriving pleasure or not deriving pleasure is connected with the matter of the item. And nevertheless, even to even pleasure derived from the usage of an item is yet connected to the matter only as it is specifically a matter of this form and hence used in this way. However, the unique prohibition of Chomet simply existing in the possession of a Jew, even without any usage, is connected to the very essence matter of the Chomet, even void of any form at all. Now, we find an argument concerning how one must eliminate chametz, in which Rabbi Yehuda states that the only elimination of chametz that will do is to burn it into total non-existence, meaning even possession of its existence does not exist. While the sages state that crumbling it into the wind or throwing it into the sea, where even though the existence of the chametz remains, nevertheless the form eating usage of the chametz does not exist anymore. Here too, the difference of opinion concerning the elimination of chametz is connected with a difference of opinion in as how deep the prohibition extends into the chametz, whether it be into the form or also into the matter of the chametz. Thus, we can now connect the dispute between Rabbi Yehuda and the sages uh, concerning the elimination of chametz with the dispute of Rabbi Elez and Rabbi Kiva concerning the number of plagues existing within each plague, in which Rabbi Eliezer aligns with the sages that only the four elements of form was affected by the prohibition impurity, hence you don't have to eliminate its existence, while Rabbi Akiva will align with Rabbi Yehuda that the essence matter was also affected by the prohibition and impurity, and hence the elimination has to be by burning it, totally removing any existence. Deep yet, just as there is a dispute concerning the elimination of chametz, and it's based upon two views concerning the reach of the prohibition into the chametz, whether the prohibition goes as deep as the essence matter, and hence need be burnt, or if it is only as deep as the form, and hence crumbling into the wind and throwing into the ocean suffices, so too we can apply this to the two forms of chametz being befitting of usage of pleasure. One, usage of pleasure applies only to, remember for the words from Rashi, that leads to any eating. For in general, pleasure leads to eating by the person taking the money he derived from the benefit of the chametz and buying with it food to eat. So even the usage is viewed as an offshoot of eating. Or we can say, even a usage that offers no personal financial gains, as for example, feeding the chametz to an ownerless dog. No one's going to pay you for it, and you didn't save any money by feeding him the chametz. Unlike if it was your own animal, if you fed him chametz, then you didn't have to feed him other stuff. Upon which 
feeding an ownerless dog, we find an argument in the Jerusalem Talmud. Here too we can say that the argument is based on whether you see the prohibition penetrating only the form of the chametz, which then limits even the usage of pleasure only to that leads to any eating form of chametz, or if the prohibition penetrates to the very essence matter of the chametz, then the usage of pleasure applies even if it brings the owner no monetary gains which with which he can then buy food to eat for himself. Because the issue here is the essence matter, not the form of what it could be used for. Now, with this, we can also understand the first opinion quoted concerning the amount of plagues. Rabbi Yossi the Galilean said. Now, before I go further with this opinion, I want to just share with you an amazing footnote of the Rebbe. The Rebbe says that we know in the rules of the language of the Talmud, there's a difference when it says, says Rabbi Eliezer or Rabbi Eliezer says. One means that he is arguing on the statement made previously. The other means, no, he's not arguing, he's just coming to explain. Now, we would have been able to say that, of course, everyone agrees that there's only 10 plagues. The argument is within the 10 plagues, was there 40 or 50? But from the terminology that we use, it seems to be saying that Rabbi Eliezer is arguing. So here is a beautiful twist into how we can see Rabbi Yossi the Galilean as a separate opinion. He says, thus you must conclude that in Egypt they were smitten by 10 plagues, meaning that Rabbi Yosef is of the opinion that the impurity affected only the outer form and not even the elements of the form. Now, if this be the case, we need to understand the prohibition according to everything we just said, if that's the only part that was affected, the outer form, which means that it's edible food, which means that the only prohibition should have been eating it. What's about the usage for pleasure? Or even more than that, it shall not be seen nor found. So number one, Rabbi Yossi is of the opinion that the usage of chametz on Passover is not prohibited. Number two, the prohibition of not seeing and not finding, which is clearly written in the Torah, it's not an extrapolation, you can't argue with that, is not because of the essence matter of the chametz, but rather it is simply a biblical offense that to guard one from mistakenly eating chametz on Passover. And why would the Torah itself give such a guardrail? It's because we eat chametz all year round. So it's so easy for us to slip into that. Let's go further now. With all, of the, oh, with all of the above, yet another complexity becomes understood. Concerning the four exiles Daniel prophesied about in the book of Daniels, sometimes we find, actually it's not just sometimes, most of the times we find that Egypt, the Egyptian exile, listed as one of the four. And sometimes not. Now, the explanation between the two opinions is that the four exiles are based upon the contrary to the four letters of God's ineffable tetragrammaton, while the Egyptian exile is contrary to the thorn of the Yud. Now, if you look in the Sefer Torah, the Tefillin or the Mezuzahs, you'll see that the top of the Yud is not flat. 
halachically, there must be a thorn, a crown, going up on the left side of the Yud. And in Kabbalah, that represents the crown, and it's far greater. We're going to see how we, we do it here. Now, it is known in Kabbalah that the four elements correspond to the four letters of the ineffable tetragrammaton, while the thorn of the Yud corresponds to the primordial matter called Hiluli, the amorphous. Now, hence, the four exiles correspond to the four elements being affected. If we say the four, element, the four exiles correspond to the four letters, and we say that the four letters of God's names correspond to the four elements, so now we know that the four exiles correspond to the four elements. Hence, the four exiles correspond to the four elements being affected, while the Egyptian exile corresponds with the essence matter being affected. Thus, the places in which our sages do not count the Egyptian exile as one of the four exiles is because the Egyptian exile is being seen as the primordial matter of exile, the thorn of the Yud as it is above and beyond any of the distinct element form letters of the four elements of exile. While there where the sages do count the Egyptian exile as the first of our four exiles, is where the Egyptian exile is perceived as the contrary to the first and all-inclusive of the ten emanations, wisdom, which is the first letter, the Yud, and it, which is the all-inclusive letter of the four letters, and it's also the, fir- the first and source of an all-inclusive of the four elements. I just want to share something here. What happens is that the four letters of God's name is God's name is also corresponding to the ten emanations. The yud is wisdom, the first hay is understanding, the vav is the six male emotion emanations, and the second hay, the last letter, is kingship, Malchus the feminine mystique. Thus, what we're saying here is, according to when they do not list, I'm sorry, when they do list the Egyptian exiles, one of the four exiles, we are looking at the Egyptian exile not as the thorn of the Yud, but as the Yud itself, because the first emanation, which is wisdom, it is the all-inclusive one. Hence, we speak about uh, wisdom being the father because the father in the sperm gives over the entire DNA, which later just has to be extrapolated by the mother, understanding, so forth and so on. Okay, now, how does this play itself out in our service to God? The two opinions, that of Rabbi Lez and that of Rabbi Kiva, manifest themselves in different dimensions within our service to God. The Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, which can be connected to the word Mitzarim, which means limits, constraints, and boundaries. Now, the Mitzrayim exile represents one being confined to the limitations and boundaries in his service to God, while the exodus from Mitzrayim represents a liberation of these limitations and boundaries. Now here I just place a footnote to understand when we talk about breaking free of the limitations and the boundaries, we're not just talking about of our ego saying, I want, I can't, I must. 
We're even talking about the limitations of the godly soul, which being a, a godly soul has intellect, emotions, and therefore is in tune with what feels spiritually right and what seems to be spiritually, intellectually right. We need to break free even of those dimensions of limitations. Now, let's go further. Rabbi Eleza demands that our service to God must break free and be liberated of, let's go from top to bottom. The fourth element, the fourth letter, the fourth dimension of the soul's faculties, which is kingship, which represents one's thoughts, speech, and actions, all belong to and be in service of God. Then the next stage is the third element, the third letter, and the third dimension of the soul's faculties, which is six male emotions, one's feelings of love, justice, compassion, etc., must all belong to and be in service of God. Then there's the second element, the second letter, and the second dimension of the soul's faculties, which is intellect. One's understanding, paradigm, and intellectual grasp of reality all must belong to and be in service of God. And then we have the first element, the first letter of God's name, the first dimension of the soul's faculties, which is self-sacrifice. One's wisdom, innermost identity of self, must belong to and be in the service of God. In other words, Rabbi Eliezer is demanding that, one, we remove any actual transgressions against the commandments of the Torah. Number two, we remove even the, what will others say, in how we behave in that which is permissible to us. Number three, we transcend beyond our understanding, A, even where we do not understand why Torah demands or prohibits a special action, and B, even where we do understand why we do it not just, why we do it not just with the cool, calm, and collect nature of the mind, but we, we do it even beyond that. And then the last level is we have self-sacrifice in sacrificing the ego. That's Rabbi Elezer's four elements of service. Now, Rabbi Akiva then takes it to the next level. For even in self-sacrifice, there can be the beingness of I am sacrificing myself for God. Thus, Rabbi Kiva demands that even that, that one even liberated himself themselves from this essence matter of self. This is the liberation even of the limitations, the definition of the essence of the soul. This is the love God and with all your might above and beyond just with all your soul of the returnee, the Baal which surpasses even the love of the righteous to God. Now, in closing, and the service of each is connected with who they were. Rabbi Eliezer, now when Moses named his child Eliezer, he said the reason. And he said, the God of my father came to my aid, who was Jewish from birth and had the aid of the God of my father. And therefore believed that ultimately nothing can ever negatively affect so deep as to the essence of the soul upon which it is ruled in Tanya, remains faithful to God even while the sin is being committed. Therefore, he doesn't go into the fifth dimension at all. Now, Rabbi Akiva, who came from converts and was therefore caring even from those, for those 
who need to be to first be brought under the wings of God, that's a terminology used for conversion, meaning that they need to transform the very essence matter of their soul. And ultimately, as mentioned earlier, it is Rabbi Akiva who liberates us even from the limitations definition of the essence of the soul, which in return brings us to the ultimate exodus of Mitzrayim, the final redemption, which will be, as Mika says in the prophecy, as in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt, I shall show him wonders.